Hi everyone, welcome to Third Space Safety Podcast, where we explore important issues in the peripheries of clinical medicine in Singapore. This is your host, An Hui. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Joanne Yung, founder and director of Research for Impact and a visiting scholar at NUS Medicine. In our conversation, we discuss the philosophy of and journey towards integrated care and defining economic efficiency in a healthcare setting. Hi, Dr. Joanne. Thank you so much for joining us today. Maybe is it okay if you could introduce yourself to our listeners first? Hi, well, thanks very much for having me. My name is Dr. Joanne Jung. I'm a senior economist at the University of Southern California, where I direct the Washington DC office and the Singapore office for a center called the Center for Economic and Social Research. And what the Center for Economic and Social Research is, is that it's an interdisciplinary research group that works in social sciences. And we do work both in healthcare, in labor economics, demography, and population sciences. And again, as I mentioned, I, I support or direct the offices for them in both in Washington, D.C., where we work with a lot of U.S. government and international agencies, as well in Singapore, where we have partnerships and collaborations. One of those collaborations is the one by which I work quite closely with the Young Lulian School of Medicine at NUS. So I work very closely with the Center for Behavioral and Implementation Sciences at NUS SOM, which is part of SOM's efforts to create new future-ready doctors with new skill sets in behavioral science as well as implementation practice. So some of you may have also seen me forcing you to sit through health economics lectures as well. I was thinking maybe yeah. we could start off the interview with talking about the integrated care complex plans in Singapore. I, sure. I know that this is something which is quite recent like in history. Like 2012, the regional healthcare system was started and then in 2017, they kind of reversed it. In some way, maybe you could talk a bit about why this is important, how this impacts patient care and how, how has it been, like how's progress been so far on this spread? Right, so care integration, I think in principle, is a concept that everyone can get behind, right? The idea that we should have care that is integrated across all of the different complex parts of the patient care journey that is coordinated in a meaningful way. And it's very patient-centric so that when we see a patient's care journey, especially the more complex patients that we're seeing these days, that at the end of the day, it shouldn't be seen as a package of parts where the patient goes to see one doctor here, one doctor there, and then puts it all together like a piece of Lego. But at the end of the day, what we should have is to have a vision that is more oriented around what the patient themselves sees and that all of these parts should work together in a very harmonious way, not only because it's more effective in terms of patient care, but also because it's more efficient. We eliminate duplication, we eliminate things like medical errors, and we also create higher patient satisfaction because it's easier for them to navigate overall. So the idea is that integrated care, particularly in a system like ours, where we see that there are so many different moving parts, is a philosophy that guides us towards a truly more patient-centered healthcare system. So in principle, actually, again, the philosophy of integrated care is very straightforward, and I think everyone can get behind it. The journey of integrated care, as you already started to allude to, especially in a situation where the different component parts have evolved very separately in many ways, is actually quite complex. So the devil really is in the details of how we bring this together. How do we operationalize this kind of cooperation? And how do we finance this kind of operation? So at the end of the day, how do we make sure that payment across the different organizations works smoothly? How do we make sure that information flows smoothly? How do we make sure that all of the different components of the healthcare system work together? All of these are very practical questions that actually take a very long time to figure out. And sometimes, in fact, the solutions are not so easy. Yeah, and 
I mean, the thought of uh, integrating care across the health sounds very daunting. Like even within a team in medicine, it can be quite difficult for communication between the consultant and the MO to the HO to the patient. Like even within a medical care team, there is that difficulty. I mean, you mentioned a bit about the devil in the details. So how exactly do you do this devil in the details and communicate these changes or the need for integration? Well, essentially that every country has a different path towards the integration of care, right? And some in some healthcare systems, we've had people have had the ability to invent healthcare systems from the ground up, or small healthcare systems from the ground up. So that's actually a very different proposition. Whereas in a country like Singapore, again, where we're actually trying to bring together pieces that have functioned separately for a long time, the care integration journey actually begins with a lot of pilots. And so rather than sort of overhauling everything all at once, in Singapore, what we started out with integrated care is really a group of pilot projects where people try to bridge, for example, a community hospital and acute hospital and look at an integrated care journey by which a person, for example, who's having a hip fracture and then uh, having a surgical intervention, then moves on to rehabilitation at a community hospital in a seamless way and then transitions with home health care from a home visiting team all within one package of care services. So in Singapore, the integrated care journey really hasn't been, in some sense, a very big top-down tsunami, but really a series of pilots in different parts of the healthcare system that have tried to sort of make these journeys work in test cases. And then we'll see where we go moving forward. I was just wondering, in, in these series of pilots, I mean, I would assume that you would need to work with partners from multiple different places. And in, in this process of integration, like you, you definitely have to win the support of people from many, many different places who have very, very different working styles. So I, I was just wondering if you had any like personal experiences in, in this actual process of trying to get everyone to work together, be on the same page. You know, we have done projects before where we looked at two different types of integration. One is looking at interprofessional communication, so multidisciplinary team building. So in this particular setting, we were looking at sort of teams where there would be a doctor, a nurse, and then maybe allied health professionals, and then they would all have to have these sort of team meetings and they would have their protocols where there was a lot of emphasis on inter interdisciplinary and interprofessional communication. And part of the challenge is that when you want a very open communication, but you're fighting against long-standing, again, as you said, some cultural norms, sometimes this idea of what it means to communicate openly across different practice areas, but also across different roles can be very challenging. So you can't just go in there and say, suddenly we will be a working interdisciplinary, interprofessional team that will have free flow. It doesn't happen immediately. And so part of my personal experience there has been that it is a challenge. It's not just a challenge from doctors being difficult, but actually all of us when we bring to this team, it's, it's not such an easy thing to change institutional cultures. So that's, that's one experience that I've had. Other experiences that I think I've, I've seen just in terms of the care integration experience and what does it mean on the ground is that you know, very often again, it, do, it does require building a lot of stakeholders together. So not just the clinicians, but actually admin, finance, all of these groups that don't often talk to each other. For example, I think as a clinician, it's very rare that a clinician in their everyday life has a lot of engagement with finance or has any idea about what, that, what goes on at the end of the day within the halls of finance. So we talk about building together a bundle payments package, whereas we're going to you know, figure out what it should cost for a package that includes services from three different types of hospitals as one integrated package. Clinicians don't usually engage with that kind of thinking. It's not part of their initial training. So again, getting buy-in from everyone 
especially in areas that they are not very familiar with and, and why should they be familiar if not part of their formal training? That does take a lot of time and it takes a lot of trust building as well because to be honest, part of the problem with integrated care is that you have to really sort of recognize that you are part of a team and be able to sort of cede a lot of responsibility to the team. And that's something where, again, as a clinician, very often you are the leader of your team. You're very focused on your specific project. So the other problem sometimes is also that clinicians feel, and this is into the health economic model, that the number one overriding concern should be patient care and that they are the ones responsible for patient care. So if you tell them that, for example, you want them to people to subscribe to this bundle or that bundle, it's actually clinicians will always say, well, what does this mean for my patients? My patients come first. And very often they want to be the ones that are able to oversee that journey. So it does take a lot interprofessionally as well as moving across roles and then trying to understand all of these new domains of administration, of finance, of organizational development and management. All of that, in my experience, are things that I've seen sort of clinicians as well as other professionals struggle with at first. But to be honest, it can be done. And when it, when it works, it's great. Okay, so actually I was also interested in having this kind of like bird's eye view from like macro to meso level to micro level. Because actually, like even in my clinical postings, when I sit in clinics, some surgeons don't even know the cost of their own surgeries. They just say, just go visit the nurse in room 18 or whatever it is, and they can counsel you further on what, how much MediSafe or MediShield covers the surgery. Oh, that's right. I mean, I understand that doctors already have a lot on their plate, but do you think that, there, that it's important for doctors to kind of know this broader picture? So I would say that just in general, and again, this is going to spill over to health economics, that it is actually important for the doctor to have some understanding of what things cost. Primarily because actually often, if they don't know, doctors actually have a lot of implicit assumptions. And when you recommend treatments and things like that, often we don't actually, if we don't teach doctors, eventually you'll get to the point when you're making assumptions on your own. So we should teach you. At the end of the day, engaging with value-based healthcare means that doctors are going to have to think for themselves, what's a cost-effective way of treating this patient or not? Let's say that you have a cancer patient, they only have a very finite amount of time to live. Are you going to recommend a very expensive treatment? Are you going to find a moderately expensive treatment? How are you going to make that judgment? And what I'm going to say is that these are not questions that you actually can avoid, right? We think that by saying nothing, we are staying neutral. But actually by saying nothing, what you're doing is you're leaving the patient to their own devices. Now, that does not rule out the fact that we say perhaps the doctor is not the best person to advise on this because the doctor is not a financial advisor. And I think that's completely true, that at the end of the day, some of these are perhaps for the medical social worker, perhaps for the financial counsellor. But that doesn't mean that the doctor should not have some rudimentary understanding and also have some idea of when exactly they need to refer people for more help. So I think that it's not a question of should doctors know, because doctors actually have to know. And if you're not taught, you're going to be there Googling it or trying to find out from the internet or basically coming up with some kind of, of, of rule of thumb for yourself. And so my belief is that doctors should actually be given this as part of their training. And again, explicitly told, this is not your major responsibility. That's not your job. You are not the financial advisor. The financial advisor is not the doctor. But the financial advisor needs to know a little bit about what happens if they just tell someone to go for the cheapest treatment, <laughs> right? It's not a good idea. And, uh, you know, when they're selling health insurance, they need to know a little bit more about that. And you as the doctor, right, 
you cannot just wash your hands of it. Like. It's something where at the end of the day, you're going to need to know. And best for that to be something that we preempt and try to support. Everybody has a role to play. Your role is to defend the patient's best interests and you guys should always feel comfortable in that role, right? It is the role of the whole ecosystem to make sure that, that you are given the right tools to do that. But increasingly, it's going to require, particularly as we talk about social economic determinants of health, it's going to require a broader understanding of what best interest means. I was thinking if you could talk a bit about the transitional care programs that you had for individuals with complex needs. I mean, I think in the ED posting that I had, you can you definitely see this like patients who, for some reason or another, have keep going to the ED for some sort of like social difficulty. And to me, that, that just seems to signify the fact that you cannot divide medicine from the social context in which your patient is in. I, mean, I think this is a good specific example of this integrated care plan that we can perhaps like talk about. So not all transitional care programs are built the same way. Some of them are, are more, but I think you're talking about the ones that really are more targeted at the frequent flyers for which there is some social, some social situation that sends them not just to the ED more frequently, but also makes them long stayers because they, you know, it's a sort of an endless cycle, right? They have a problem, they come into the hospital, they stay a long time because there's no one to receive them at home. When they leave, they go out. The problem is that, again, there's no one to care for them at home. And so then they are readmitted more frequently. And then again, they say, and the cycle goes on and on and on. So part of the hospital and home programs that try to address this very often have a couple of different components to it. One is a component of care coordination. So there will be someone who is a, care, a formal care coordinator, often a nurse, sometimes not a necessarily trained nurse, but a care coordinator specifically, who helps to organize care so organize all of the appointments, recommend different services, and really play the role of the person who manages the care regime for that person. Because again, it's quite complex once you get out, right? Another element of transitional programs would be having actually services in the medical services delivered in the home. So organizing that. So whether or not it's a physio that comes or so and so that comes to the house, but also not just medical care, but social care workers. So a care worker who would come check in on medication refills and compliance and things like that, but also address any outstanding social, for example, do they need someone to come in and clean the house? Do they need someone to come in and provide some of these other social, do they need to be connected with social services in an important way? So the, so the transitional care program really has, has two or three components. And then sometimes there's an additional component, which would be a nurse hotline or some way in which they can access help on an emergency basis if they need to, so they don't need to show up again in the ER, they can call a nurse hotline. So all of these components are meant to basically reinforce right, care structures that should be there in the home that would help them stay out of the hospital. Because again, the hospital, right, at the end of the day, you have other issues, right? You might come in and there's uh, hospital-acquired infections and other things. It's not a healthy environment for them to be in if they can have care at home. It's also much more costly than having care at home. So the idea of these traditional care programs is really to move them into a care environment that makes sense for them in the home and until the point when they're in many cases, for example, if you are recovering from, again, a hip fracture or a minor stroke, to the point when, again, you can be healthy. Now, this is not the same thing as a regular community nursing program for people who are now going to be chronically ill and will have to have care for the rest of their lives. For those, again, sometimes the question is transitioning them or moving them to a nursing home, for example. Right? But transitional care programs are meant to say it's actually very complex reintegrating back to the community. How can we provide this bundle of services 
including care management, care delivery, and then emergency support that helps you stay in the community until you are, in fact, able to cope on your own. I was thinking maybe like something I hear, a word that I hear quite a lot, right, is the word like efficiency. And from a, from a clinician's point of view, what efficiency means in reality means spending less time with your patients so that you can see a greater number of patients in the same period of time. But I was wondering, what is efficiency? I mean, maybe you could start off like from a basic question. Yeah, sure. I'll define it for you from an economic point of view, right? For economists, there are two types of efficiency. One is what we call technical efficiency, and the other is what we call allocative efficiency. Technical efficiency means that you are getting the most out of the resources that you have. So if you indeed, if you have eight hours a day in a primary care clinic and you have to do that, are you seeing as many patients as you could? Now, the question is efficiency here is defined with respect to an outcome, right? So if your output outcome is number of patients, then the question about efficient, you would be efficient if you were seeing as many patients as possible. But if your primary outcome is quality of care, then you would be efficient if you're delivering the best possible care or the most total social welfare gain per number of hours in the clinic. So I want to make the two points here. Again, one, that technical efficiency is about maximizing the technical use of your resources, but it's relative to whatever the outcome criterion is. Right? It could be, again, seeing maximum number of patients if that's what you've defined as your desired outcome. But again, it could be quality of care. It could be maximum number of cases that are satisfactorily solved, all of these things, it could be quality adjusted life years. It doesn't have to be maximum number of patients. That is dependent on who designs your system. The second criteria for efficiency is not a technical criteria. It's called allocative efficiency. It means using your resources for the greatest amount of social welfare gain. So for example, is that eight hours that you're spending in a primary care clinic actually the best total use of your time? So you may be seeing as many patients as you can in those eight hours in the primary care clinic, but maybe that's not the best use of your time overall for the healthcare system. Let's say that you're an extremely experienced neurologist, right? So if you're an experienced, experienced neurologist and in Singapore, they say specialists can do anything. Lah, huh? So perhaps you're also the world's best primary care doctor. Let's just say. So you're whipping through it and indeed you're as efficient as possible, but from a technical perspective, given the resource that you have, from an allocative efficiency point of view, it's not efficient at all. It may actually be better to have someone that is not as good as you as delivering primary care, slightly worse, but now you're able to free up your resource to treat the patients who really need you. And so even though perhaps now your primary care clinic is not operating at maximum technical efficiency, your overall healthcare system is doing better. So efficiency is actually quite a complicated concept. It depends on both your technical capacity what you think is the best distribution of your resources and actually your definition of what your ultimate outcome is. It certainly doesn't mean that the most number of patients you can see, the more efficient you are. And if they're all dying, that's extremely inefficient. It just feels quite unsettling still, I guess, to, mm. for that feeling of like a patient to be shuttled from like room to room in a, in a, in a given day. Or to be like given like an appointment like three months later at a polyclinic or you know absolutely. like absolutely yeah it I mean, is very unsettling like what exactly is the next course of action then I mean like I think in medical education they do try to address this in terms of like the art part of like, implementing the clinical sciences or being part of a healthcare system so like for example they they teach us how to like show empathy I know it sounds a bit weird to have to say it like, it's important to be taught actually because. Sometimes when you're in a situation where your emotions are very overwhelming, it's just like having good manners. 
right? Having some guidelines is actually super helpful because you're going to be confronting such big issues, your own emotions, when you're tired, and it's in your professional capacity to maintain the empathy. So I think it's good that they teach you. Mm, it's a good idea. Like the the way that they teach it is like it's it's also based on around the constraints that are already given to us. Like we don't have a lot of time to be able to spend with patients. So the way that they, they, they call it the by the way phenomenon. So they ask you to ask like open-ended questions at the beginning of the consultation so that you get everything that you need out of the way instead of the patient like opening the door and being like, oh, sorry, doctor, there's something I, I didn't tell you. And then you have to spend an additional 20 minutes. So it, it, still, it still is unsettling and feels like we have to work within these limitations. Do you think like it's too idealistic to think of it in another way that we can possibly have a healthcare system which is patient-centered, not just in the terms of like the integration, but also in a way that makes the patient feel like they are being cared for? So it's a question of balancing the fact that you need to handle volume against this level of personalization and, and sort of, you know, individual attention. So again, with the transitional care programs, right, the reason that they have a care coordinator is they acknowledge that the person needs to go to all these different places, but they want to have one point of contact who actually sort of downloads all of the information and makes the care journey seem more integrated. And that is personified in the care coordinator. Right? You will see that if you're not in the public health care system, right, part of what you get in the private healthcare world is that you can go for a concierge doctor service where in fact you get this, right? In other countries, we have primary care physician, you have a dedicated primary care physician who's your family doctor and you see that person for every year for the rest of your life, which is quite different than our system where if you go to the polyclinic, you see whoever comes. Yeah, so we don't have a single point of contact that manages all your care within the healthcare system currently. Would that be a better model? Again, I think where what we have is that for people who can afford it, that's great. And then what we in Singapore have tried to do is say for patients that really need it, so again, patients with complex care, we're going to try to introduce models that have that element where in fact, if we can't avoid sort of saying that in fact, your specialist has to sit here, other specialists have to sit there, you have to go for ice cleaning here. And you're We've tried to have models now where we have the family medicine clinics that bring all the services together in one place so that the patient can see it all in one morning, for example. You can get, if you're a diabetic, you get a food screening, your ice cleaning, all in one place. We've tried to introduce roles like the patient care coordinator that helps to do that. And then again, for patients who don't have such high need but have willingness to pay, I think that there are private sector alternatives where you will have a doctor that gets to know you. What we are trying to do now is make sure that those people for whom there is this need, they have some flavor of that. Ideally, of course, yes, we will move to a system where everyone has this level of care. I think with technology now, also people are hoping that having individualized medical records and people have this level of empowerment, maybe there's some, there's some tool that can offset this as well. Do I think that this is coming very soon for everyone? I think that would be challenging to deliver low-cost healthcare with that level of personalization. So if you're young and healthy and you don't need it, then it's not necessary for you to have that level. But again, definitely this is a model that we are looking to at people who are more complex. Yeah, it is terrible to be shunted around as if you're a parcel, right? Go here, go there, explain yourself every two minutes. And again, having a comprehensive EMR is what should actually reduce some of this as well. That makes sense. I remember for one of my other episodes with Professor Gerald Cole from Saucy Hawks for Public Health, something that he mentioned which was quite chilling to me was that the difference between public health and being like a clinician, which is 
at a public health, you have to certain prioritize certain needs over the others. And that, that seems to me as quite calculative, if that makes sense. But I was wondering, like, as a Singaporean, it seems like our country is doing pretty well, you know, if you can give vaccines to everyone. Is there room for kind of like loosening your purse strings a little bit to make the, like, for instance, like maybe give doctors a bit more time? I mean, I mean, this is just one small little example. I'm sure there's other ways of uh, thinking about this to kind of like make the experience of a patient or a clinician a bit more warm, I guess, is the word. Yeah. So, you know, the WHO has this thing called the building blocks uh, framework. And they say that, you know, when you think about healthcare services, the things that healthcare services should be is that, first of all, they should be high quality and they should be effective, number one. <laughs> number two, they should be efficient. And number three, be responsive to non-medical needs. And people are like, what the heck do you mean by responsive to non-medical needs? And you say things that, you know, they should be, first of all, they should be uh, ethical. <laughs> that's important. They should care about the experience. That's also important. They should be free of stigma, for example. So creating a healthcare experience that's non-medical is also really part of what WHO considers to be part of what a health service should do. Yeah. So we can start from that premise, but we can also start again from the premise that again, most people are like, huh? What does this mean? <laughs> it's not normal. Now, there's also two elements to what I think Prof. Gerald said that I would unpack a bit more. I think at the end of the day, he is right in, in some way, which is that if you only have a fixed budget within the constraints of a fixed budget, what economists say is that we have an unlimited amount of needs or wants, right? And we have a limited amount of resource. So what are we going to do? Are we going to pour our resource into providing vaccination for everyone? Or are we going to provide sort of deeper and more intense clinical services. So how do we prioritize given that at the end of the day, perhaps what we have to do, if I could speak to someone who has studied history before, do we emphasize the body politic or do we emphasize the individual human body? It's very difficult. We all know that new cancer drugs, right? There hasn't been a new cancer treatment that has been less than $100,000 per regime in the last five years. Can you give someone, one person, three extra months of life at 100000 or are you going to give vaccination to X number of school children? Very difficult to say. Very difficult to say. And those are two extreme examples, but as we get grayer and grayer towards the middle of the spectrum, these choices become very hard. But with public health, that's the thing, right? We're going to sink a lot, of, a lot of resources into infrastructure. Rather than the patient you see in front of you, you have to rely on the science that tells you clean water, clean air, better nutrition, this and that is going to lead to these outcomes. And so actually, I would say that just to reinforce what Prof. Jell said, that a public health physician has to have a lot of faith. And it's actually a very difficult job because they are advocating for the invisible mass against the visible individual. And that's a trade-off that we have to make. We don't have a choice. So that's true, right? It's just a fact of life that we will never have enough. Could we be spending more? I would say that Singapore government has in fact been spending more. The last few budgets that we've seen, healthcare budget has gone up every single year. Are we spending as much as we should? Now that's a very specific question. Because number one, it's very difficult to pull things back once you've done it. Number two, I think we want to be sure that we don't waste. So it's a little bit challenging because there's still aspects of the healthcare system that are waste. And number three, I think we want to make sure that we are conservative, right? Because when you increase the healthcare budget, you take money away from somewhere else. Yeah. So are you taking money away from education? Will you take money away from national defense? Where is it going to come from? Unless we say every year the government spends more, in which case then taxes go up, which is also 
possible. But these are very large questions about what it means to be a Singaporean citizen that you know, often lie outside our purview. Are we spending too much in healthcare or too little in healthcare today? It's a very difficult question because in Singapore, we have both the public and the private healthcare. In the public sector, we are conservative, I think, quite rightly so. But in the private sector, because we've allowed it to go, we've now seen in medical inflation in the private sector very, very high every year. That's what the free market does. So we want to be very careful when we say, are we spending too much or too little? There's no magic number. When we look at the OECD countries, Singapore spends much less, much less. And that's why people like Bloomberg have said that Singapore is one of the most efficient healthcare systems in the world. We get very long life for very little money. I think it's inevitable that we are going to keep spending more because we are aging and new technologies cost more. And so we are going to be spending more money every year. But then you'll see when MediShield premium goes up, people get upset. When treasury premium goes up, people get upset. What we have to be able to do is demonstrate the value. People don't want to, it's just like you know, if you went to smart, you wouldn't want to pay more for something that you don't see getting better, right? <laughs> so from a healthcare professional's point of view, I think we have to make sure that we keep delivering high quality care. And that's the only way that we can justify to people that the cost of healthcare keeps going up. If we ourselves don't fill that part of the bargain, it's very difficult to get people to pay more. I guess that's also a kind of like a very Singaporean way of doing things. It's like, oh, I don't, sh- I don't tell you, I just show it to you that I work rather than true words, if, if that makes sense to you. So something which I sometimes hear from patients, right? And I'm not sure if it's true. Come and debunk this if it's, if it's real or not. So they always say stuff like, oh, you know, like the MediShield or the Elder Shield premiums keep going up and up and up. So then yeah. they, they always say stuff like, oh, in the Singapore government's eyes, like the first thing to do is to make money. And so this just extends even to this kind of national uh, insurance schemes. And then I, to be honest, I, I really don't know if these are making money so-called or is it just like running the overhead cost of um, the need? I will tell you that all of these schemes are very highly subsidized. So we actually lose a lot of money on them. The reason that the premiums go up is that we are reducing the amount of subsidy. But at, far, at fair market value, the cost of that insurance would be higher than it is. Now, unfortunately or fortunately, the government does want to be sustainable, right? So the Singapore government is very fiscally prudent. So it doesn't want to lose money. It doesn't necessarily want to make money, but it doesn't want to lose money. So that's true. But I think also that that's something that, again, I'm not a shill for the government one way or the other. I don't work for the government. Thank you, government. But I would say that in many other countries, a lot of what happens is kicking the can down the road. So we spend today and then another government coming down the line will have to worry about the fact that we have this huge deficit. Whereas in Singapore, we're very averse to doing that. So we don't want to kick the can down the road. Right? Creating spending for my administration, so my administration looks great. And then 20 years from now, someone's like, oh my God, we can't fund the damn thing. It's not an approach that the Singapore government stands behind. So is it more kiam sub than other governments? Yeah, I cannot, I cannot deny that we are more kiam sub. That is true. Okay. <laughs> But is the Singapore government seeking to make money off of these insurance schemes? I would say that this is just categorically not the case. But again, also, right, just because something is not what you call actually fair doesn't mean that it's not a hardship, right? The actual price is high for people. It doesn't mean that just because it's the right price. It's like saying, you know, a Porsche can be a value buy for a Porsche, but it can't, it's not affordable for people, 
right? So you could have a Porsche that's very affordably priced. You're like, okay, all things considered, yeah, it's a 15% cheaper than other Porsches in the market. Wonderful, it's good value for money. But that doesn't mean it's affordable there. These are two different things. Yeah, absolutely. Is this increase in healthcare costs maybe like a side effect of the, the scaling up of a system, if that makes sense? So I would say a lot of healthcare inflation has definitely come from the fact that we have greater demand for healthcare services. So just not price inflation now, but just total spending comes from that more people are using more healthcare services, right? We have more technologies and these technologies are more expensive. When institutions get bigger, there's two things that happen to the cost. One is that we have diseconomies of scale, which means in fact, things take on a life of their own. But also sometimes we have economies of scale because certain things are, are cheaper to provide when you provide for many people. Uh, so the, you, know, you invest, you have a very big fixed cost, you build a hospital, but after that, the incremental cost of using those facilities per person is actually much less. So we don't have a counterfactual right, for what this would have been if Singapore's healthcare system had developed in another way. I would say that there is a, a reasonable amount of concern that we do see waste and duplication. Again, that's why integrated care is so important. And there is a sense that you know, from the beginning, I think when, again, speaking of the time when the British left, one of the first things that Lee Kuan Yew said about our healthcare system is that he wanted to introduce a co-pay. So at the beginning, what happened when the British left was that they left a UK-style thing where all public hospitals were free. And the introduction of the co-pay, which was basically, I think at the time, it was 50 cents for a visit. Yeah, inflation works. Huh? 50 cents for a visit was because the philosophy was that people should think about using the services because when people when healthcare services are free we tend to see a lot of overuse and the problem is that the minute you introduce a fee on the other hand you have the specter of underuse so you have to weigh these two devils one against the other so they introduce a very small copay to try to make people a little bit more to reduce what we call moral hazard in the healthcare system so you won't just go and such a such a use all the time so that's health cost down a little bit more than it would have otherwise. I would say that again, you know, in the private sector, especially for buying these riders, which allow you to have private healthcare at no individual cost to yourself, have actually contributed a lot to healthcare costs growing up. So you can kind of use that as a benchmark. I personally think that, you know, in the US, we've seen that waste and inefficiency in the healthcare system. There are studies that show that it's almost 30 to 40% of healthcare costs are actually due to waste. I think this margin is much less in Singapore. Qualitatively speaking, I haven't done a study, but I would suspect it's much less. Is there this element? Yes, I agree. Any big organization that we have will have these kinds of deadweight, what we call in economics, deadweight loss, the deadweight loss of bureaucracy, right? It's just, you know, forms that have to be filled in by A are collected by B and all of this just goes into Noela. I wouldn't say that I think the Singapore healthcare system is very efficient, but I think that relative to other healthcare efficiency, it's not the worst. Could be much, much worse. I would recommend strongly that medical students try to study some economics. It's actually a very fascinating discipline. And put it this way, lah, huh? what you don't know can hurt you, right? So you don't want to be blur blur, right? Even if the most wonderful thing you get from economics is the feeling that you're so happy you didn't study economics and you became a doctor. <laughs> It'll still be useful. Better the devil you know than the devil you don't. I would suggest also when you read journals, which you do as good medical professionals, don't gloss over the articles that look like they would be boring. They're not going to be. I would read, read widely and uh, I think, you know, knowledge is power. Lah. Mm.